Book Two, Chapter Two of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Two Constance. CHAPTER Two, CHRISTMAS AND THE FUTURE One. Mr. Povey was playing a hymn-tune on the harmonium, it having been decided that no one should go to chapel. Constance, in mourning, with a white apron over her dress, sat on a hassock in front of the fire, and near her, in a rocking-chair, Mrs. Baines swayed very gently to and fro. The weather was extremely cold. Mr. Povey's mittened hands were blue and red, but, like many shopkeepers, he had apparently grown almost insensible to vagaries of temperature. Although the fire was immense and furious, its influence, owing to the fact that the medieval grate was designed to heat the flue rather than the room, seemed to die away at the borders of the fender. Constance could not have been much closer to it without being a salamander— the era of good old-fashioned Christmases, so agreeably picturesque for the poor, was not yet at an end. Yes, Samuel Povey had won the battle concerning the locus of the family Christmas, but he had received the help of a formidable ally—death. Mrs. Harriet Maddock had passed away, after an operation, leaving her house and her money to her sister— the solemn rite of her interment had deeply affected all the respectability of the town of Axe, where the late Mr. Maddock had been a figure of consequence. It had even shut up the shop in St. Luke's Square for a whole day. It was such a funeral as Aunt Harriet herself would have approved, a tremendous ceremonial which left on the crushed mine an ineffaceable, intricate impression of shiny cloth, crepe, horses with arching necks and long manes, the drawl of parsons, cake, port, size, and Christian submission to the inscrutable degrees of providence. Mrs. Baines had borne herself with unnatural calmness until the funeral was over, and then Constance perceived that the remembered mother of her girlhood existed no longer. For the majority of human souls it would have been easier to love a virtuous principal or a mountain than to love Aunt Harriet who was assuredly less a woman than an institution. But Mrs. Baines had loved her, and she had been the one person to whom Mrs. Baines looked for support and guidance. When she died, Mrs. Baines paid the tribute of respect with the last hoarded remains of her proud fortitude, and weepingly confessed that the unconquerable had been conquered, the inexhaustible exhausted, and become old with whitening hair. She had persisted in her refusal to spend Christmas in Bursley, but both Constance and Samuel knew that the resistance was only formal. She soon yielded. When Constance's second new servant took it into her head to leave a week before Christmas, Mrs. Baines might have pointed out the finger of Providence at work again, and this time in her favour. But no, with amazing pliancy, she suggested that she should bring over one of her own servants to tide Constance over Christmas. She was met with all the forms of loving solicitude, and she found that her daughter and son-in-law had turned out of the state bedroom in her favour. Intensely flattered by this attention, which was Mr. Povey's magnanimous idea, 
she nevertheless protested strongly. Indeed, she would not hear of it. "'Now, mother, don't be silly,' Constance had said firmly. "'You don't expect us to be at all the trouble of moving back again, do you?' And Mrs. Baines had surrendered in tears. Thus had come Christmas. Perhaps it was fortunate that the axe servant being not quite the ordinary servant, but a benefactor, where a benefactor was needed, both Constance and her mother thought it well to occupy themselves in household work, sparing the benefactor as much as possible. Hence Constance's white apron. "'There he is,' said Mr. Povey, still playing, but with his eye on the street. Constance sprang up eagerly. Then there was a knock on the door. Constance opened, and an icy blast swept into the room. The postman stood on the steps, his instrument for knocking, like a drumstick, in one hand, a large bundle of letters in the other, and a yawning bag across the pit of his stomach. "'Merry Christmas, ma'am!' cried the postman, trying to keep warm by cheerfulness. Constance, taking the letters, responded, while Mr. Povey, playing the harmonium with his right hand, drew half a crown from his pocket with the left. "'Here you are,' he said, giving it to Constance, who gave it to the postman. "'Fan!' who had been keeping her muzzle warm with the extremity of her tail on the sofa, jumped down to superintend the transaction. "'Brrr!' vibrated Mr. Povey, as Constance shut the door. "'What lots!' Constance exclaimed, rushing to the fire. "'Here, mother! Here, Sam!' The girl had resumed possession of the woman's body. Though the Baines family had few friends— sustained hospitality being little practised in those days, they had, of course, many acquaintances, and, like other families, they counted their Christmas cards as an Indian counts scalps. The tale was satisfactory. There were between thirty and forty envelopes. Constance extracted Christmas cards rapidly, reading their contents aloud, and then propping them up on the mantelpiece. Mrs. Baines assisted. Fan dealt with the envelopes on the floor— Mr. Povey, to prove that his soul was above toys and gewgaws, continued to play the harmonium. "'Oh, mother!' Constance murmured in a startled, hesitant voice, holding an envelope. "'What is it, my chuck?' "'It's—' The envelope was addressed to Mrs. and Miss Baines, in large, perpendicular, dashing characters, which Constance instantly recognised as Sophia's. The stamps were strange— the postmark, Paris. Mrs. Baines leant forward and looked. "'Open it, child,' she said. The envelope contained an English Christmas card of a common type, a spray of holly with greetings, and on it was written, "'I do hope this will reach you on Christmas morning. Fondest love.' No signature, nor address. Mrs. Baines took it with a trembling hand, and adjusted her spectacles. She gazed at it a long time. "'And it has done,' she said, and wept. She tried to speak again, but not being able to command herself, held forth the card to Constance, and jerked her head in the direction of Mr. Povey. Constance rose, and put the card on the keyboard of the harmonium. "'Sophia,' she whispered. Mr. Povey stopped playing. "'Dear, dear,' he muttered. Fan, perceiving that nobody was interested in her feats, suddenly stood still. Mrs. Baines tried once more to speak, but could not. 
Then, her ringlet shaking beneath the band of her weeds, she found her feet, stepped to the harmonium, and with a movement almost convulsive, snatched the card from Mr. Povey, and returned to her chair. Mr. Povey abruptly left the room, followed by Fan. Both the women were in tears, and he was tremendously surprised to discover a dangerous lump in his own throat. The beautiful and imperious vision of Sophia, Sophia as she had left them, innocent, wayward, had swiftly risen up before him, and made even him a woman too. Yet he had never liked Sophia. The awful secret wound in the family pride revealed itself to him as never before, and he felt intensely the mother's tragedy, which she carried in her breast, as Aunt Harriet had carried a cancer. At dinner he said suddenly to Mrs. Baines, who still wept, "'Now, mother, you must cheer up, you know.' "'Yes, I, I must,' she said quickly, and she did so. Neither Samuel nor Constance saw the card again. Little was said, there was nothing to say. As Sophia had given no address, she must still be ashamed of her situation. But she had thought of her mother and sister. She, she did not even know that Constance was married. What sort of place was Paris? To Bursley, Paris was nothing but the site of a great exhibition which had recently closed. Through the influence of Mrs. Baines, a new servant was found for Constance in a village near Axe, a raw, comely girl who had never been in a place, and through the post it was arranged that this innocent should come to the cave on the 31st of December. In obedience to the safe rule that servants should never be allowed to meet for the interchange of opinions, Mrs. Baines decided to leave with her own servant on the 30th. She would not be persuaded to spend the new year in the square— on the twenty-ninth, poor Aunt Maria died all of a sudden in her cottage in Broom Street. Everybody was duly distressed, and in particular Mrs. Baines' demeanour under this affliction showed the perfection of correctness. But she caused it to be understood that she should not remain for the funeral. Her nerves would be unequal to the ordeal, and moreover her servant must not stay to corrupt the new girl." nor could mrs baines think of sending her servant to axe in advance to spend several days in idle gossip with her colleague this decision took the backbone out of aunt maria's funeral which touched the extreme of modesty a hearse and a one-horse coach mr povey was glad because he happened to be very busy an hour before his mother-in-law's departure he came into the parlour with the proof of a poster "'What is that, Samuel?' asked Mrs. Baines, not dreaming of the blow that awaited her. "'It's for my first annual sale,' replied Mr. Povey, with false tranquillity. Mrs. Baines merely tossed her head. Constance, happily for Constance, was not present at this final defeat of the old order. Had she been there, she would certainly not have known where to look. Two. Forty next birthday!' Mr. Povey exclaimed one day, with an expression and in a tone, that were at once mock-serious and serious. This was on his thirty-ninth birthday. Constance was startled. She had, of course, been aware that they were getting older, but she had never realised the phenomenon. Though customers occasionally remarked that Mr. Povey was stouter— and though, when she helped him to measure himself for a new suit of clothes, the tape proved the fact, he had not changed for her. She knew that she too had become somewhat stouter, 
but for herself she remained exactly the same Constance. Only by recalling dates and by calculations could she really grasp that she had been married a little over six years, and not a little over six months. She had to admit that if Samuel would be forty next birthday, she would be twenty-seven next birthday. But it would not be a real twenty-seven, nor would Sam's forty be a real forty like other people's twenty-sevens and forties. Not long since she had been in the habit of regarding a man of forty as senile, as practically in his grave. She reflected, and the more she reflected, the more clearly she saw that, after all, the almanacs had not lied. Look at Fan! Yes, it must be five years since the memorable morning when doubt first crossed the minds of Samuel and Constance as to Fan's moral principles. Samuel's enthusiasm for dogs was equalled by his ignorance of the dangers to which a young female of temperament may be exposed, and he was much disturbed, as doubt developed into certainty. Fan, indeed, was the one being who did not suffer from shock, and who had no fears as to the results. The animal, having a pure mind, was bereft of modesty. Sundry enormities had she committed, but none to rank with this one. The result was four quadrupeds, recognisable as fox-terriers. Mr. Povey breathed again. Fan had had more luck than she deserved, for the result might have been simply anything. Her owners forgave her, and disposed of these fruits of iniquity, and then married her lawfully to a husband who was so high up in the world that he could demand a dowry. And now Fan was a grandmother, with fixed ideas and habits, and a son in the house, and various grandchildren scattered over the town. Fan was a sedate and disillusioned dog. She knew the world as it was, and in learning it she had taught her owners above a bit. Then there was Maggie Hollins. Constance could still vividly recall the self-consciousness with which she had one day received Maggie and the heir of the Hollinses, but it was a long time ago. After staggering half the town by the production of this infant, of which she nearly died, Maggie allowed the angels to waft it away to heaven, and everybody said that she ought to be very thankful at her age. Old women dug up out of their minds forgotten histories of the eccentricities of the goddess Lucina. Mrs. Baines was most curiously interested. She talked freely to Constance, and Constance began to see what an incredible town Bursley had always been— and she never suspected it. Maggie was now the mother of other children, and the draggled lame mistress of a drunken home, and looked sixty. Despite her prophecy, her husband had conserved his habits. The Poveys ate all the fish they could, and sometimes more than they enjoyed, because on his sober days Hollins invariably started his round at the shop, and Constance had to buy for Maggie's sake. The worst of the worthless husband— was that he seldom failed to be cheery and polite. He never missed asking after the health of Mrs. Baines, and when Constance replied that her mother was pretty well considering, but that she would not come over to Bursley again until the Axe Railway was opened, as she could not stand the drive, he would shake his grey head and be sympathetically gloomy for an instant. All these changes in six years. The almanacs were in the right of it. But nothing had happened to her. Gradually she had obtained a sure ascendancy over her mother, yet without seeking it, merely as the outcome of time's influences on her and on her mother respectively. 
Gradually she had gained skill and use in the management of her household and her share of the shop, so that these machines ran smoothly and effectively, and a sudden contretemps no longer frightened her. Gradually she had constructed a chart of Samuel's individuality, with the submerged rocks and perilous currents all carefully marked, so that she could now voyage unalarmed in those seas. But nothing happened, unless their visits to Buxton could be called happenings. Decidedly the visit to Buxton was the one little hill that rose out of the level plain of the year. They had formed the annual habit of going to Buxton for ten days. They had a way of saying, "'Yes, we always go to Buxton. We went there for our honeymoon, you know.' They had become confirmed Buxtonites, with views concerning St. Aaron's Terrace, the Broad Walk, and Peel's Cavern. They could not dream of deserting their Buxton. It was the sole possible resort. Was it not the highest town in England? Well, then. They always stayed at the same lodgings, and grew to be special favourites of the landlady, who whispered of them to all her other guests as having come to her house for their honeymoon, and as never missing a year, and as being most respectable, superior people in quite a large way of business. Each year they walked out of Buxton Station behind their luggage on a truck, full of joy and pride, because they knew all the landmarks, and the lie of all the streets, and which were the best shops. At the beginning, the notion of leaving the shop to hired custody had seemed almost fantastic, and the preparations for absence had been very complicated. Then it was that Miss Insull had detached herself from the other young lady assistants, as a creature who could be absolutely trusted. Miss Insull was older than Constance. She had a bad complexion, and she was not clever— but she was one of your reliable ones. The six years had witnessed the slow, steady rise of Miss Insull. Her employer said, "'Miss Insull,' in a tone quite different from that in which they said, "'Miss Hawkins,' or "'Miss Dad.' "'Miss Insull' meant the end of a discussion. "'Better tell Miss Insull.' "'Miss Insull will see to that. "'I shall ask Miss Insull.' Miss Insull slept in the house ten nights every year. Miss Insull had been called into consultation when it was decided to engage a fourth hand in the shape of an apprentice. Trade had improved to the point of excellence. It was now admitted to be good, a rare honour for trade. The coal-mining boom was at its height, and colliers, in addition to getting drunk, were buying American organs and expensive bull-terriers. Often they would come to the shop to purchase cloth for coats for their dogs, and they would have good cloth. Mr. Povey did not like this. One day a butty chose for his dog the best cloth of Mr. Povey's shop at twelve shillings a yard. "'Will you make it up? I've gotten the measurements,' asked the collier. "'No, I won't,' said Mr. Povey hotly. "'And what's more, I won't sell you the cloth either. "'Cloth at twelve shillings a yard on a dog's back, indeed. "'I'll thank you to get out of my shop.' The incident became historic in the square." It finally established that Mr. Povey was a worthy son-in-law and a solid and successful man. It vindicated the old preeminence of Baines's. Some surprise was expressed that Mr. Povey showed no desire nor tendency towards entering the public life of the town. But he never would, though a keen satirical critic of the local board in private, and at the chapel he remained a simple private worshipper, refusing stewardships and trusteeships. 3. Was Constance happy? 
Of course there was always something on her mind, something that had to be dealt with, either in the shop or in the house, something to employ all the skill and experience which she had acquired. Her life had much in it of laborious tedium, tedium never-ending and monotonous, and both she and Samuel worked consistently hard, rising early, pushing forward, as the phrase ran, and going to bed early from sheer fatigue. Week after week, and month after month, a season changed imperceptibly into season. In June and July it would happen to them occasionally to retire before the last sliver of dusk was out of the sky. They would lie in bed and talk placidly of their daily affairs. There would be a noise in the street below. "'Vault's closing,' Samuel would say, and yawn. "'Yes, it's quite late,' Constance would say and the Swiss clock would rapidly strike eleven on its coil of resonant wire. And then, just before she went to sleep, Constance might reflect upon her destiny, as even the busiest and smoothest women do, and she would decide that it was kind. Her mother's gradual decline and lonely life at Axe saddened her. The cards which came now and then at extremely long intervals from Sophia had been the cause of more sorrow than joy— the naive ecstasies of her girlhood had long since departed, the price paid for experience and self-possession and a true vision of things. The vast inherent melancholy of the universe did not exempt her. But as she went to sleep, she would be conscious of a vague contentment. The basis of this contentment was the fact that she and Samuel comprehended and esteemed each other, and made allowances for each other. Their characters had been tested— and had stood the test. Affection, love, was not to them a salient phenomenon in their relations. Habit had inevitably dulled its glitter. It was like a flavouring, scarce remarked. But had it been absent, how they would have turned from that dish! Samuel never, or hardly ever, set himself to meditate upon the problem of whether or not life had come up to his expectations— but he had at times strange sensations which he did not analyse, and which approached nearer to ecstasy than any feeling of Constance's. Thus, when he was in one of his dark furies, molten within and black without, the sudden thought of his wife's unalterable benignant calm, which nothing could overthrow, might strike him into a wandering cold. For him she was astoundingly feminine. She would put flowers on the mantelpiece— and then, hours afterwards, in the middle of a meal, ask him unexpectedly what he thought of her garden. And he gradually divined that a perfunctory reply left her unsatisfied. She wanted a genuine opinion. A genuine opinion mattered to her. Fancy calling flowers on a mantelpiece a garden. How charming! How childlike! Then she had a way, on Sunday mornings, when she descended to the parlour, all ready for chapel, of shutting the door at the foot of the stairs with a little bang, shaking herself, and turning round swiftly as if for his inspection, as if saying, "'Well, what about this? Will this do?' A phenomenon always associated in his mind with the smell of kid gloves. Invariably she asked him about the colours and cut of her dresses. Would he prefer this or, or that? He could not take such questions seriously, until one day he happened to hint, merely hint, that he was not a thorough-going admirer of a certain new dress. It was her first new dress, after the definite abandonment of crinolines. She never wore it again. 
He thought she was not serious at first, and remonstrated against the joke being carried too far. She said, "'It's not a bit of use you talking. I shan't wear it again.' And then he so far appreciated her seriousness as to refrain, by discretion, from any comment. The incident affected him for days. It flattered him. It thrilled him. But it baffled him. Strange that a woman subject to such caprices should be so sagacious, capable, and utterly reliable as Constance was. For the practical and common-sense side of her eternally compelled his admiration. The first example of it, her insistence that the simultaneous absence of both of them from the shop for half an hour or an hour, twice a day, would not mean the immediate downfall of the business, had remained in his mind ever since. Had she not been obstinate, in her benevolent way, against the old superstition which he had acquired from his employers, they might have been eating separately to that day. Then her handling of her mother, during the months of the siege of Paris, when Mrs. Baines was convinced that her sinful daughter was in hourly danger of death, had been extraordinarily fine, he considered. And the sequel, a card for Constance's birthday, had completely justified her attitude. Sometimes some blundering fool would jovially exclaim to them, "'What about that baby?' Or a woman would remark quietly, "'I often feel sorry you've no children.' And they would answer that really they did not know what they would do if there was a baby, what with the shop and one thing and another. And they were quite sincere. 4. It is remarkable what a little thing will draw even the most regular and serious people from the deep groove of their habits. One morning in March, a bone-shaker, an affair on two equal wooden wheels, joined by a bar of iron, in the middle of which was a wooden saddle, disturbed the gravity of St. Luke's Square. True, it was probably the first bone-shaker that had ever attacked the gravity of St. Luke's Square. It came out of the shop of Daniel Povey the confectioner and baker, and Samuel Povey's celebrated cousin, in Bolton Terrace. Bolton Terrace formed nearly a right angle with the Baines premises, and at the corner of the angle Wedgwood Street and King Street left the square. The bone-shaker was brought forth by Dick Povey, the only son of Daniel, now aged eleven years, under the superintendence of his father, and the square soon perceived that Dick had a natural talent for breaking in an untrained bone-shaker. After a few attempts he could remain on the back of the machine for at least ten yards, and his feats had the effect of endowing St. Luke's Square with the attractiveness of a circus. Samuel Povey watched with candid interest from the ambush of his door, while the unfortunate lady assistants, though aware of the performance that was going on, dared not stare from the stove. Samuel was tremendously tempted to sally out boldly and chat with his cousin about the toy. He had surely a better right to do so than any other tradesman in the square, since he was of the family, but his diffidence prevented him from moving. Presently Daniel Povey and Dick went to the top of the square with the machine opposite Hull's, and Dick, being carefully installed in the saddle, essayed to descend the gentle paven slopes of the square. He failed, time after time. The machine had an astonishing way of turning round, running uphill, and then lying calmly on its side. At this point of Dick's life history, every shop-door in the square was occupied by an audience. 
At last the bone-shaker displayed less unwillingness to obey, and, lo, in a moment Dick was riding down the square, and the spectators held their breath as if he had been Blondin crossing Niagara. Every second he ought to have fallen off, but he contrived to keep upright. Already he had accomplished twenty yards, thirty yards. It was a miracle that he was performing. The transit continued, and seemed to occupy hours. And then a faint hope rose in the breast of the watchers, that the prodigy might arrive at the bottom of the square. His speed was increasing with his knack. But the square was enormous, boundless. Samuel Povey gazed at the approaching phenomenon as a bird at a serpent, with bulging beady eyes. The child's speed went on increasing, and his path grew straighter. Yes, he would arrive, he would do it. Samuel Povey involuntarily lifted one leg in his nervous tension. And now the hope that Dick would arrive became a fear, as his pace grew still more rapid. Everybody lifted one leg and gaped, and the intrepid child surged on, and finally, victorious, crashed into the pavement in front of Samuel, at the rate of quite six miles an hour. Samuel picked him up unscathed, and somehow this picking up of Dick invested Samuel with importance, gave him a share in the glory of the feat itself. Daniel Povey came running and joyous. "'Not bad for a start, eh?' exclaimed the great Daniel. Though by no means a simple man, his pride in his offspring sometimes made him a little naive. Father and son explained the machine to Samuel, Dick incessantly repeating the exceedingly strange truth that if you felt you were falling to your right, you must turn to your right, and vice versa. Samuel found himself suddenly admitted, as it were, to the inner fellowship of the bone-shaker, exalted above the rest of the square. In another adventure more thrilling events occurred. The fair-haired Dick was one of those dangerous, frenzied madcaps who are born without fear. The secret of the machine had been revealed to him in his recent transit, and he was silently determining to surpass himself. Precariously balanced, he descended the square again, frowning hard, his teeth set, and actually managed to swerve into King Street. Constance, in the parlour, saw an incomprehensible winged thing fly past the window. The cousin's povey sounded an alarm and protest, and ran in pursuit, for the gradient of King Street is, in the strict sense, steep. Halfway down King Street, Dick was travelling at twenty miles an hour, and heading straight for the church, as though he meant to disestablish it and perish. The main gate of the churchyard was open, and that affrighting child with a lunatic's luck whizzed safely through the portals into God's Acre. The cousin's povey discovered him lying in a green grave, clothed in pride. His first words were, "'Dad, did you pick my cap up?' The symbolism of the amazing ride did not escape the square. Indeed, it was much discussed. This incident led to a friendship between the cousins. They formed the habit of meeting in the square for a chat. The meetings were the subject of comment, for Samuel's relations with the greater Daniel had always been of the most distant. It was understood that Samuel disapproved of Mrs. Daniel Povey, even more than the majority of people disapproved of her. Mrs. Daniel Povey, however, was away from home. Probably, had she not been, Samuel would not even have gone to the length of joining Daniel on the neutral ground of the open square. But having once broken the ice, Samuel was glad to be on terms of growing intimacy with his cousin. The friendship flattered him, for Daniel, despite his wife, was a figure in a world larger than Samuel's. 
Moreover, it consecrated his position as the equal of no matter what tradesman, apprentice though he had been. And also, he genuinely liked and admired Daniel, rather to his own astonishment. Everyone liked Daniel Povey. He was a favourite among all ranks. The leading confectioner, a member of the local board, and a sidesman at St. Luke's, he was, and had been for twenty-five years, very prominent in the town. He was a tall, handsome man, with a trimmed, greying beard, a jolly smile, and a flashing dark eye. His good humour seemed to be permanent. He had dignity without the slightest stiffness. He was welcomed by his equals, and frankly adored by his inferiors. He ought to have been chief bailiff, for he was rich enough. But there intervened a mysterious obstacle between Daniel Povey and the supreme honour, a scarcely tangible impediment which could not be definitely stated. He was capable, honest, industrious, successful, and an excellent speaker. And if he did not belong to the austerer section of society, if, for example, he thought nothing of dropping into the tiger for a glass of beer, or of using an oath occasionally, or of telling a facetious story, well, in a busy, broad-minded town of thirty thousand inhabitants, such proclivities are no bar whatever to perfect esteem. But— how is one to phrase it without wronging Daniel Povey? He was entirely moral. His views were unexceptionable. The truth is that for the ruling classes of Bursley, Daniel Povey was just a little too fanatical a worshipper of the god Pan. He was one of the remnant who had kept alive the great Pan tradition from the days of the Regency, through the vast, arid, Victorian expanse of years. The flighty character of his wife— was regarded by many as a judgment upon him for the robust Rabelaisianism of his more private conversation, for his frank interest in and his eternal preoccupation with aspects of life and human activity which, though essential to the divine purpose, are not openly recognised as such, even by Daniel Povey's. It was not a question of his conduct, it was a question of the cast of his mind. If it did not explain his friendship with the rector of St. Luke's, it explained his departure from the primitive Methodist connection, to which the Poveys as a family had belonged since primitive Methodism was created in Turnhill in 1807. Daniel Povey had a way of assuming that every male was boiling over with interest in the sacred cult of Pan. The assumption, though sometimes causing inconvenience at first, usually conquered by virtue of its inherent truthfulness— Thus it fell out with Samuel. Samuel had not suspected that Pan had silken cords to draw him. He had always averted his eyes from the god, that is to say, within reason. Yet now Daniel, on perhaps a couple of fine mornings a week, in full square, with Fan sitting behind on the cold stones, and Mr. Critchlow, ironic in his door in a long white apron, would entertain Samuel Povey for half an hour with Pan's most intimate law, and Samuel Povey would not blench. He would, on the contrary, stand up to Daniel like a little man, and pretend with all his might to be, potentially, a perfect archpriest of the god. Daniel taught him a lot, turned over the page of life for him, as it were, and showing the reverse side seemed to say, "'You were missing all that?' Samuel glanced upwards at the handsome long nose and rich lips of his elder cousin, so experienced, so agreeable, so renowned, so esteemed, so philosophic— and admitted to himself that he had lived to the age of forty in a state of comparative boobyism. And then he would gaze downwards at the faint patch of flower on Daniel's right leg, 
and conceived that life was, and must be, life. Not many weeks after his initiation into the cult, he was startled by Constance's preoccupied face one evening. Now a husband of six years' standing, to whom it has not happened to become a father, is not easily startled by such a face as Constance wore. Years ago he had frequently been startled, had frequently lived in suspense for a few days, but he had long since grown impervious to these alarms. And now he was startled again, but as a man may be startled who is not altogether surprised at being startled. And seven endless days passed, and Samuel and Constance glanced at each other like guilty things, whose secret refuses to be kept. Then three more days passed, and another three. Then Samuel Povey remarked in a firm, masculine, fact-fronting tone, "'Oh, there's no doubt about it.' And they glanced at each other, like conspirators who have lighted a fuse and cannot take refuge in flight. Their eyes said continually, with a delicious and enchanting mixture of ingenuous modesty and fearful joy, "'Well, we've gone and done it.' There it was, the incredible, incomprehensible future coming. Samuel had never correctly imagined the manner of its heralding. He had imagined, in his early simplicity, that one day Constance, blushing, might put her mouth to his ear and whisper something positive. It had not occurred in the least like that. But things are so obstinately, so incurably unsentimental. "'I think we ought to drive over and tell Mother on Sunday,' said Constance. His impulse was to reply, in his grand off-hand style, "'Oh, a letter will do.' But he checked himself, and said, with careful deference, "'You think that will be better than writing?' All was changed. He braced every fibre to meet destiny, and to help Constance meet it. The weather threatened on Sunday. He went to Axe without Constance. His cousin drove him there in a dog-cart, and he announced that he should walk home, as the exercise would do him good.' During the drive, Daniel, in whom he had not confided, chattered as usual, and Samuel pretended to listen with the same attitude as usual. But secretly he despised Daniel, for a man who has got something not of the first importance on the brain. His perspective was truer than Daniel's. He walked home, as he had decided, over the wavy moorland of the county dreaming in the heart of England. Night fell on him in mid-career, and he was tired— but the earth, as it whirled through naked space, whirled up the moon for him, and he pressed on at a good speed. A wind from Arabia wandering cooled his face, and at last, over the brow of Toft End, he saw suddenly the five towns, a twinkle on their little hills, down in the vast amphitheatre. And one of those lamps was Constance's lamp, one somewhere. He lived, then, he entered into the shadow of nature, the mysteries made him solemn. What? A bone-shaker? His cousin? And then this? "'Well, I'm damned. Well, I'm damned,' he kept repeating. He who never swore. End of chapter 2